Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our evening service, Sunday 19th of May 2019. This evening we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, and brings us a message entitled, Lessons Worth Learning. We are reading this evening in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we're coming into the reading at verse 13. And we're going to read through to verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjuna, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen to God's word. Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you'll settle our hearts and our minds, that there may be no distracting thoughts. We pray that you will teach us what we do not know, that you will give us what we do not have. And you will help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Christ our Savior's sake. Amen. I think it's true to say that of all the roads that you and I will travel on, there is none to be compared with the road of life. Many and wonderful are the experiences that all of us have had and will continue to have as we travel on that road. The people we meet, 
the problems we encounter, the predicaments we face, all combine to make it a very unique and invaluable road. And Jesus walked this road. It was the road that the Father had planned for him. It was a road that brought him from the highest heights of heaven and took him to the lowest depths of hell. It was a road that would bring grief and agony and pain as well as joy and happiness and fulfillment as he stepped out to do the Father's will. We know from the scriptures that his pathway on earth was programmed by the Father's will in heaven. He told us that he had come to do the Father's will. And every step that he took, every piece of ground he covered, he did so in fellowship with his Father in heaven. And here in Matthew 16, we draw alongside him as we walk with him and we realize that he's on the way to the place called Calvary to accomplish God's plan for sinners lost and ruined by the fall. What were the things that were uppermost on his mind as he walked this road? What can we learn from Christ as we draw near to him and accompany him on his journey to the cross? Well, I think there are three things that I want to bring from this scripture that we read tonight. Three things that we can learn from Christ. We can learn, first of all, what Christ taught about his church. What Christ taught about his church. If you follow the reading carefully, you know that Jesus engaged in some interactive conversation with his disciples. And they asked him a very important question. As he makes his way to the place called Calvary, he's about to establish his true identity in the minds of his followers. And he does so, first of all, by asking a general question. Who do men or who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course, some said that he was John the Baptist. Others said that he was Elijah. And in doing so, they were saying two things about the Lord Jesus. They were saying that he was as great a prophet, even as the greatest of prophets, Elijah. For Elijah had always been looked on as the summit and peak and prince of the prophetic line. They were also saying that Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah, because in Malachi chapter 4, he says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And I wonder, did you know that to this day, the Jews expect the return of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah? Uh, and to this day, they have uh, they've left the chair vacant for Elijah when they celebrate the Passover. For when Elijah comes, according to Jewish thinking, the Messiah will not be far away. So the people looked on Jesus as the herald of the Messiah and the forerunner of the true Messiah. And some said Jeremiah. They thought that this tearful and thunderous prophet had returned. He was the one who had helped God's people in their times of trouble. 
And then the Lord Jesus turns from the general approach to the personal approach. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And this was a question that searched the minds and sifted the hearts of those who listened to the teaching of Christ in his earthly life. It's a revealing question, reminding us that whatever discovery we make of Christ, it must be personal. You remember on one occasion, Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews. And the Lord answered, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? You see, our knowledge of the Savior can never be second-hand. A man could wax elegantly on the teachings and miracles of Christ. He can know everything to be known about the genealogy of Christ and still not be a child of God. You see, Christianity never consists in just knowing about Christ. Jesus Christ demands a personal verdict. Jesus Christ demands a personal response to his teaching. He wants us not just to be hearers of his word, but doers of his word, as James the Apostle reminds us in his letter. He not only asks Peter, but he asks every man, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? And when Peter speaks, it is as if the Lord uh, senses, well, here is one who is clear regarding my true identity. And if you read through the Gospels, each of the three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present their own version of the response. In Matthew, we read, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Mark, we read, you are the Christ. In Luke, we read, you are the Christ of God. And here Jesus knew that there was at least someone who had recognized him for the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. The word Messiah and the word Christ are the same word. The one is the Hebrew and the other is the Greek for the Anointed One. It was a very familiar term within royalty. Kings were ordained to office by anointing as they still are. And the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one is God's divine king over men. And so we have this great response recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And then this revelation, Blessed are you, Simon Barjuna, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here are words that have led to painful differences and problematic divisions over the centuries. Some of the, are of the opinion that the Apostle Peter was to be the foundation on which Christ would build his church. But surely that cannot be true. To speak 
of an erring, fallible child of Adam, as the foundation of the spiritual temple does not have the support of the Scriptures. The teaching of Christ here establishes two great truths about his church. And the first is this, that his church is built on a sure foundation. That his church is built on a sure foundation. The confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock on which the foundation is built on. What the Savior said to Peter can be understood in this way. You are rightly called by the name Peter or Stone, for you have confessed the mighty truth on which, as on a rock, I will build my church. It's very careful, it's very important to carefully interpret these words. He didn't say, Peter, I'm building the church on you. No, he said, I am building the church on the rock of this revealed truth that I and only I am the true Messiah, the anointed one sent from the Father. You see, the Lord Jesus is not only the head of the church that is referred to and likened to a body, but he is the foundation of the church which is likened to a building. Here's a remarkable text that is recorded in Acts chapter 4. He, speaking of the Lord Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And of course, the capstone was a crucial stone for the formality of the building and for the security of the building. And then Peter went on to say this, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Paul takes up this same theme in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You remember the story about the two men that built houses, one upon the rock and the other upon the sand. They both looked alike, but the security and the safety and the strength of the house was determined not by appearances, but about the foundation upon which those houses were built. And Christ is our foundation tonight. He is our rock. You remember the little chorus you learned? Built on the rock and not upon the sand. You need not fear the storm or the earthquake shock. You're safe forevermore if you build on the rock. And of course, when we think of the church tonight, we're not thinking of buildings made with hands. We're not thinking of bricks and mortars. Years ago, in the early days of Baptist church life, these buildings would have been referred to in certain parts of the island as the meeting house. The meeting house. And that's a very appropriate name because it reminds people that the building is not the church, but those who are in Christ built upon the foundation of Christ, that they are the church. That the church is the body of Christ of which he is the head. A body for the inhabitation of the Spirit. A building, that's a building whose foundation is Christ and Christ alone. And these rules were given to Peter 
And they exclusively, these rules were never given to Peter. He is not the rock or anyone like him. They exclusively belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people building on many things other than Christ tonight. Some are building on the reputation of men. Some are building on the religions of the world. Some are building on the rituals of the church. But we need to be build on Christ who is the sole head and only foundation. I will build my church. He alone is the architect, the builder, the owner, the Lord of the church. The word church comes from a little word called ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And if you're saved tonight, you belong to the family of God. You're in this building of which Christ is the foundation. You're in the body of which Christ is the head. You have been called out. We rest tonight on a sure foundation. Jesus Christ teaches us about his church and has a sure foundation. Not only has it a sure foundation, but you will notice here, it has a secure future. It has a secure future. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades is the place of punishment for the spirits of dead unbelievers. The point of entry to Hades is death. Here is a Jewish phrase which refers to death. Even death, the ultimate weapon of Satan, has no power to stop the church. We have heard this saying before, that the blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs, in fact, has been used to speed the growth of the church in size and in spiritual power. So as we walk with Jesus on the road of life, on the way to Calvary, the church is on his mind. And we learn what he has to teach concerning the church, that it's built on a sure foundation and it has a secure future. And if you're in Christ tonight, there's no need to worry, there's no need to fret, there's no need to fear because you are built on a sure foundation and you have a secure future. But then as we go a little further along this road, we learn not only about what Christ taught about the church, but we learn about what Christ taught about the cross. He begins to explain certain things that his disciples needed to learn about the cross. They needed to learn about the necessity of the cross. They need to learn that he must go to Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus was on a mission. He was sent from the Father in heaven. He had a program scheduled by the timetable of heaven. I go back tonight to John chapter 2. Our Lord's mother spoke to him by way of a request. They have no more wine. And Jesus responds to her, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour, my time has not yet come. He moved in accordance with a divine timetable. And in John 12, 27, we read, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason. I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus Christ begins to introduce 
to his disciples the absolute necessity of the cross. Because without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, there is no cleansing. Without the cross, there is no getting right with God. Without the cross, there is no being forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future, and being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and being made fit for God's eternal heaven. So he's speaking to them here about the cross. He must needs go to Jerusalem. And remember that the Lord Jesus knew all things. He was the eternal Son of God, and he knew the end from the beginning, and he knew the necessity of his sacrifice. And then, of course, he talks about not only the necessity of the cross, but the agony of the cross. He tells them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. To suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the, be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead. Here we are walking in the steps of the Savior. Here we are listening to what he's teaching about his church and about his cross, about the necessity of the cross, about the agony of the cross, how he would suffer physically, how he would suffer mentally, how he would suffer emotionally, and how he would suffer spiritually when the wrath of God would be poured out upon him, where there would come a moment he would be separated from the Father in heaven and he would cry from the depths of his soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But not only the necessity of the cross and the agony of the cross, but the victory of the cross. On the third day be raised to life. He would not stay on the cross. He would not remain in the grave. At God's appointed time, in God's appointed way, he would be brought back to life. And that glorious Miraculous truth would send out this tremendous message that all that Christ did on the cross was sufficient to save those who would look to him for salvation. But against this explanation, there is Peter's opposition. The revelation that Jesus was bringing here was met with rejection. And rejection was met with rebuke. It's almost impossible for us to conceive how strange and incomprehensible these words must have seemed to his disciples. Like most Jews, they could not cope with a suffering Messiah. They didn't understand that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah must be literally fulfilled. They did not see that the sacrifices of the law were all meant to point them to the death of the true Lamb of God. And there is no truth in Scripture so deeply important as the truth of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The language that our Lord uses here to rebuke Peter emphasizes that very fact. He addresses him by the awful name Satan as if he were an adversary and doing the devil's work. One minute he says, Blessed are you, Simon. And the next he says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You see, the truth of the death of Christ is crucial to the faith, central to the Christian gospel. And wrong views of the atoning work of Christ will take a man or a woman to hell. The cross lies at the very heart of the gospel. I think it's true to say this on matters of church government, styles of worship, dress, many differ. 
and still safely reach heaven, believe it or not. But on the matter of Christ's atoning death, on the truth of Jesus Christ and his cross being the only way to pardon and peace and the prospect of heaven. Here is a truth that is absolutely crucial and absolutely essential. It is not up for negotiation. It is not up for discussion. Often you hear in the political arena, I take the middle ground. There is no middle ground here. There are no alternatives here. God stands at the cross. Christ stands at the cross. And God says, you're either for me or you're against me. If we're wrong here, we're ruined forever. J.C. Ryle says, error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease at the heart. Here we stand, and we can do nothing else but stand. We must never move from this sacred blood-stained ground. Do you remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3? He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. I received this from God. I received this from heaven. This is not something that was trumped up in some apostolic conference. This is not something that was born out of some theological school of learning. Paul says, I pass on to you as of first importance what I received from God. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised the third day, according to the Scriptures. And we can't have a crossless Christ. And we must never try to preach a bloodless gospel. Here we are walking with Christ on the Calvary Road, listening to what Christ taught about his church, listening to what Christ taught about his cross, and finally learning what Christ taught about his calling. If we are to obey this calling, there are three musts to consider. We must, first of all, deny ourselves. We must say no to self and yes to God. There must be the dethroning of self and the enthroning of God. How often you and I can get in the way of God. Our plans, our programs, our pleasures, our prospects before God. We must deny ourselves. Secondly, we must take up his cross. And we must be clear on what this means. This is not the sort of thing that you hear some folks say, well, everybody has their cross to bear. Whether it's some neighbor that's given you trouble, whether it's some sickness, whether it's some poverty, whether it's some hardship, this is not the cross that we're thinking about now. This is Christ's cross, his cross. This is a cross that involves sacrifice. This is a cross that involves separation. And this is a cross that will cause the world to laugh at us and to make light of us and think we're absolutely crazy. In Luke's account, we read these words. We must take up his cross daily. What sort of a cross was it? It was a cross 
of rejection. Remember the old hymn we used to sing, Our Lord is now rejected, and by the world disowned, by the many still neglected, and by the few enthroned. Beloved in Christ tonight, bear this in mind, we are following a rejected Savior. And on the cross we see the full light of his rejection. We do not always receive the applaud of men and the approval of the world, but it is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? We must deny ourselves. We must take up his cross, and we must follow him. Walking in the footsteps of the Savior, following him who is our Lord, our lover, our leader, our friend. Here are lessons that are worth learning tonight. Lessons that the Lord Jesus taught on his road to the Calvary. Lessons in relation to his church, built on a sure foundation with a secure future. Lessons to be learned about his cross, the necessity of his cross, the agony of his cross, the victory of his cross, and lessons to be learned about his calling, a calling that challenges us to deny ourselves and to take up his cross and to follow him. I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two ways meet. Satan, he was standing there. He said, come this way. Lots and lots of pleasure I will give to you today. But I said, no, there's Jesus here. Just see what he offers here. Down here, my sins forgiven. Up there, a home in heaven. Praise God, that's the way for me. May God bless his word to all our hearts tonight. And may it bear fruit in all our lives. We thank him for it in our Savior's name. We're going to conclude our meeting.